0: had this spiritual vision that was really more than I could handle at the time, that nothing can bring lasting
1: happiness. So I wonder, like, how did that stuff all get there to begin with?
0: It reframes the reason for making these changes from fear of dying to joy of living. People would say, what are you a Hindu? He'd say, no, I'm an Undo. This is really where the title of my new book, Undo It, came from.
1: So I'd like to start by asking you this question. What matters to you? What matters to me?
0: (laughs) Well, that's a pretty big question. And we could spend a few days talking about that. Um, I think what matters most is uh, for me personally is feeling like I can empower others with information that they can use to transform their lives for the better. That's really what gets me out of bed every day. Um, I love doing this work for the last 40 some odd years I've been directing research proving that simple lifestyle changes, you know, what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and how much love and support can reverse the progression of the most common chronic diseases. And uh, the more diseases we study, the more evidence we have to show what a powerful difference these simple changes can make. And to me, awareness is always the first step in healing. And the reason that I spend so much of my time doing these studies is that properly done with the you know, the most reputable collaborators and publishing leading peer-reviewed medical journals can redefine what's possible for people and thereby give millions of people at this point new hope and new choices in ways they can empower their lives for the better.
1: Hmm. So what I hear at the core there is um, uh, a desire, a motivation to have a positive effect on other people that that gets you out of bed, you know, every day. Um, is that component also essential for a human being to, you know, live in a healthy way? That we feel that the actions that yeah. we're taking, taking are beneficial for others and doing some good in the world.
0: Absolutely, that's actually how I got interested in doing this work. Was um, I learned that I could take all the meaning out of life uh, when I was a nineteen-year-old college student and got emotionally uh, and severely depressed. Um, when I could learn, I could take all the meaning out, you know, who cares? So what, nothing matters, big deal. I was at Rice university in Houston and felt like I had, um, you know, somehow managed to fool the admissions committee into letting me in. But now that I was with a bunch of really smart kids, it was just a matter of time before they realized what a big mistake they'd made in letting me in. And plus I had this spiritual vision that was really more than I could handle at the time that nothing can bring lasting happiness. And so the combination of feeling like I was never going to mount anything, and even if I did, wouldn't matter anyway, was profoundly depressing. And depressing is really when you, uh, that one of the hallmarks of depression is a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. And it really comes from a reality distortion where you think things are bad, they've always been bad, and it'll always be bad. And anytime you thought otherwise, you were just, you know, fooling yourself. So I thought, well, you know, why don't I just kill myself, you know? Um dead people look like they're happy and peaceful and I was so agitated I could barely you know sleep and um, I got to a point where I literally couldn't sleep for a week straight which is enough to make anyone crazy and I couldn't read a headline on a newspaper and tell you five minutes later what it said and would have probably gone through that it It wouldn't be here except for the fact that I fortunately got so sick with mononucleosis that I um, didn't have the energy to get out of bed and, and kill myself and my Parents got wind that I was not doing well. They came and saw what a wreck I was and went home to Dallas with the intention of getting strong enough to kill myself, as crazy as that sounds. Meanwhile, my older sister, uh, this was in 1973, had been a child of the sixties and uh, had benefited from studying with Swami Satchidananda. So when he came to Dallas to give a talk, my parents decided to to, to do a cocktail party for the Swami, which (laughs) back in 1973 in Dallas, I mean, today in Dallas, that'd be weird, but back in 1973, it was really weird. And so there's an old saying that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And so in walks, you know, the central castings idea of what a swami should look like, you know, a long white beard and saffron robes and the whole bit. And he gave a satsang, a lecture in our living room, and started off by saying, nothing can bring lasting happiness, which I'd already figured out. But there he was glowing, and I'm ready to do myself in. I thought, well, what am I missing here? And he went on to say what probably sounds like a Uh, you know, a new age cliche, but turned my life around, which is that nothing can bring lasting happiness. But on the other hand, you don't need it. In other words, our nature is by and large to be happy and peaceful and healthy. And not being aware of that, we often run after so many things. If only I had more, whatever, more money, more power, more beauty, more accomplishment, whatever, then I'd be happy. Then people would love me Then I wouldn't feel so isolated and lonely, and then things would be good. And what he went on to say is that once you set up that view of the world, which so much of our culture reinforces, I mean, the whole advertising industry is really based on the idea that you have to get something outside of yourself to be happy and healthy. Is that once you buy into that model, however, it turns out you're generally going to feel bad because until you get it, whatever it is, you're going to feel stressed and I have to get it. It's really important. And the stakes go up, so the stresses go up. It's not just winning or losing, it's being a winner or a loser on the line. If you're a loser, nobody wants to be around you. If somebody else gets it and you don't, then it reinforces this idea that we live in a hostile, doggy-dog, zero-sum game world. The more you get, the less there is for me, and you better get it while you can. Um, And even if you get it, it's seductive, because in the moment it's like, ah, I got it, now I'm happy. But it doesn't last. It's soon followed uh, most of the time by either now what, it's never enough. I had a patient years ago who said, I can't even enjoy the view from the mountain I've climbed. I'm already looking over the next one. Or so what? Big deal. It doesn't really provide that lasting sense of meaning. And so the cycle continues. A patient said, I, you know, the letdown that comes from accomplishing or getting something that I thought was going to make me happy and didn't um, was so great that I make sure I've got a dozen projects going at the same time so I can immediately shift my focus to that. So what the Swami told me was that Um, is that we have it already that in one of the perhaps the greatest ironies of life that we end up running after things that we think we need to be happy peaceful and in the process of running after all these things we disturb what we could have already if we just stopped doing that and as you know he liked to make puns and people say what are you a hindu he'd say no i'm an undo which is really where the title of my new book undo it came from Besides the fact that the undo button on my computer has always been my favorite button, my favorite keyboard key on the keyboard, because you know you can actually undo things immediately, which is such a nice thing. And um, and so for me, the work that I do, um, I mean, and, and anyway, so I, I I said, let me put killing myself on down to Plan B. Let me try all this weird stuff. You know, I haven't grown up in Texas eating you know meat five times a day, chilies and cheeseburgers and chalupas and whatever. Uh, I decided. To, he said, you know. Go on a plant-based diet, um, meditate, <clears throat> exercise, have more love in your life, which really became the cornerstones of my, my work, my life's work. Eat well, move more, stress less, love more. Uh, I began to get glimpses that I was feeling more peaceful. And he would always say, remind yourself, remind yourself that the these techniques like meditation don't bring you a sense of peace like so many people think, but rather they simply help you stop disturbing what's already there. And that may sound like semantics, you know, parsing out words, but the implications are quite profound because if it's out there, then everyone who has something that I think I need to be happy and healthy has power over me. But if it's me disturbing my own intrinsic sense of health and well-being, I can do something about that, not to blame myself, but to empower myself. And then the question shifts from how can I get what I think I need to be happy and healthy to how can I stop disturbing what's already there? And that's a profound difference. So I was able to do these things, you know, I, at first I couldn't even, uh, I was so agitated, I couldn't even stop pacing around, you know, even to meditate, but I would do walking meditations and began to get glimpses of what it meant to be peaceful and to realize and to literally connect the dots between what I was doing and what I was feeling. And then I went back to school and, uh, you know, graduated first in my class, gave a baccalaureate address. And I say that not to brag, but to say, I experienced both ends of the spectrum from being profoundly dark and despairing and depressed and feeling like i was stupid and you know would never amount to anything to you know being very successful and the paradox was the more i felt like i needed to to do well to get into medical school so that i could then you know feel a sense of love and respect for myself and others the harder it became to do any of that because i was so anxious about it and the more inwardly defined i became because of the swami's advice the more I could think clearly enough to be able to, to do well. That was the paradox. The less I needed it, the more successful I became. And so when I went to medical school, I was learning how to do bypass surgery with Michael DeBakey, one of the people who invented bypass surgery. And we cut people open. We bypassed their clogged arteries. He'd tell them they were cured. And more often than not, they would go home and do all the things that had caused the problem in the first place. You know, eat junk food, not manage a stress, not exercise, smoke cigarettes, et cetera. And their new bypasses would clog up and we cut them open again, sometimes two or three times. And so for me, that became a metaphor of an incomplete approach. The Swami was always saying, deal with the cause. There's always a causal chain of events that leads to a problem. And the farther back in that chain of events you go to what's really the causation of it, the more powerful the healing can be. And I found that to be true. So I took a year off between my second and third years of medical school and began a pilot study of just 10 people who had really bad heart disease for a month and found that eight of the 10 actually got better. Not only did we help them to stop getting worse, but they actually showed improvement in their heart disease. Their blood flow to their heart improved in eight of the 10 cases. At that time, it was thought the best you could do was slow down the rate at which you got worse. It was thought impossible to reverse it. And one of the reasons why I've spent so much of my life doing these scientific studies is that properly done with the leading uh, collaborators and published in the leading peer-reviewed journals, it enables us to redefine what's possible. In this case, we could redefine that heart disease actually could be reversed. And that uh, now has been replicated in two randomized trials we did since that time. And now we have data on tens of thousands of people who have been through the program. Medicare created a new benefit category to cover uh, my reversing heart disease program uh, 11 years ago. And just a few, about a month ago, they're now covering it when it's offered virtually. If anyone's interested in learning about that, which we're working with ShareCare to do. Uh, go to Ornish.com and it lists the sites that we've trained. But now we'll be offering it virtually and Medicare will pay for it wherever people live in the country. They don't have to live within driving distance of one of the hospitals or clinics that we've trained. So now we can reach everybody um, and, uh, you know, that'll help reduce health disparities and health inequities. People in rural areas will have equal access to it. And so I find it incredibly meaningful. You know, For me, getting depressed was my doorway into transforming my life. And when someone, one of the things I learned from, from Swami Satya is that change is hard, but if you're suffering, the opportunity for change is much greater. It's kind of like, wow, that's so weird, you know, diet, you know, vegetarian diet and meditation and yoga, what are you talking you know, How weird is that? You know, but boy, I'm hurting so bad, let me try this weird stuff. And then that gives people the credibility to want to try it because it's, you know, it's scientifically proven, uh, especially now that it's covered by Medicare and some of the other insurance companies. And then because these underlying biological mechanisms are so dynamic, most people find that they feel so much better so quickly in just a few days to a few weeks. You know, within three weeks, most people who have angina due to heart disease are pain-free. And so it redefines and reframes the reason for making these changes from fear of dying or fear of a heart attack or stroke or something really bad happening, to joy and love and pleasure in feeling it. I mean, for someone who's got such bad heart disease that it can't literally, walk across the street without getting chest pain or make love with their spouse or play with their kids or go back to work without getting chest pain. Within a few weeks, I can do all those things. They often say things like, well, you know, I like eating junk food, but not that much, you know, because again, what I gain is so much more than what I give up. It's not about just preventing something bad from happening years down the road. It's like, oh, I can really feel so much better very quickly. One of the people I write about in the Undo It book is a internal medicine doctor himself who had a massive heart attack. And to the point where his heart was so damaged, it was pumping so poorly, he was told that he would have to have a new heart, uh, a heart transplant, to stay alive. I mean, he could—he had to be carried to his room. He—he he said, "I've got dead patients who look better than I did." way he put it. And um, uh, he went through the program that we trained at UCLA in Los Angeles for nine weeks to get in better shape for the heart transplant, and by the end of nine weeks, his heart had improved so much in its ability to pump blood that he didn't need a heart transplant. What's the more radical intervention here, a new heart or eat well, move more, stress less, love more. And we found in a series of studies over many decades that these same lifestyle changes could reverse not only heart disease, but type two diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, uh, early stage prostate cancer, uh, we're now in the, f- the middle of the first randomized trial to see if we can reverse the progression of men and women at early stage Alzheimer's disease. And I think we're at a place with Alzheimer's very reminiscent of where we were with heart disease 40 years ago. In other words, the same biological mechanisms are at play. The less intensive lifestyle changes slow the rate at which you get into dementia, but there are no drugs that can even stop or reverse its progression. We think, or our hypothesis is at least, that you know, ounce of prevention, pound of cure. It's hard to reverse a life-threatening condition. It takes a lot, much bigger changes in lifestyle to do that. That's why we were the first to show that with heart disease and other conditions is that most people didn't go far enough and you need to change a number of things at the same time, which we've done. And so we're hoping that we can show with Alzheimer's what we've shown earlier with heart disease and other conditions. If anyone's interested in in, uh, learning more about the heart disease program, just go to Ornish.com, we've partnered with Sharecare to make it available, and for the heart disease, I mean, for the Alzheimer's study, we're still recruiting uh, the last group of patients, so also if you go to Ornish.com, it it talks about that. So the new book puts forth this unifying theory, like why is it the same lifestyle changes can reverse so many different chronic diseases? You know, I was taught, like all doctors, different different diseases have different diagnoses and different treatments, and yet we found these same lifestyle changes could stop or reverse the progression of all these conditions. And, you know we, we still don't know yet about alzheimer's and so why is that and i realized that because these diseases really are more alike than they are different they're they're the same disease in many respects manifesting and masquerading in different forms because they all share the same underlying biological mechanisms chronic inflammation oxidative stress changes in immune function uh, in telomeres and gene expression and angiogenesis overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system and so on and each one of these biological mechanisms in turn is directly influenced by what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and how much love and support we have. You know, eat well, move more, stress less, love more. And so that radically simplifies uh, both what we tell people. Uh, the, the book begins with one of my favorite quotes from uh, Albert Einstein. If you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. That's one of the things I loved about Swami Satchidanandhi. he can take the most complex ideas and make them so simple and without being simplistic. Uh, why Steve Jobs you know, was more proud of what he left out of the iPhone than what he put in it, just to really radically simplify it in a very zen way. And so now we don't have to say, oh, here's your diet for heart disease and here's your diet for diabetes and here's your diet for uh, prostate cancer or breast cancer. It's the same for all of them. So it radically simplifies this and helps us understand why you know, some people have what are called comorbidities. They'll have heart disease and diabetes and prostate cancer and high blood pressure and high cholesterol because they're all just the same Condition manifesting in all these different forms.:
1: So this idea of a, a simple life, I think, is, is even a powerful one, and, but perhaps not a very popular one uh, these days. It seems that um, most people are, are looking to you know achieve wealth and, and fame, um, but there's not room for everyone right, to be wealthy and famous. But there is room for everyone to have a simple life. And so, yeah. uh,
0: I think that, you know, COVID, uh, you know, with all its horrors, I mean, whatever good has come from that is that I think it's caused many people to reassess what really matters in life. Mm. You know, and a lot of people are not going back to the, you know, nine to five, you know, corporate uh, cubicle uh, that they had been at before. They're looking for, you know, uh, life is short, you know, one of the the real blessings of of death is that it, uh, it forces us to say, you know, am I spending each day the way that I really want to? Am I living the life that I want? What brings me joy and meaning and pleasure in my life? And I think many people are finding that, you know, going for, you know, money and power and fame, not that there's anything wrong with those, but if they become goals in and of themselves, as opposed to another form of power that enables us to serve better, You know, that's the, you know, the beautiful teaching of of Swami Satyananda is that, you know, when you serve other people, you're not doing that for some extrinsic reward to get a gold star or go to heaven or a good karma, even you're doing it because that's what frees us from our suffering. That's what brings meaning into our life. You know, I learned, as we talked about a few minutes ago, that I could take all the meaning out of life. And that's what being depressed is. The hallmark of depression, the helplessness and hopelessness is because people have removed all the meaning from their lives. I know what that's like. It's a horrible feeling. But we can also imbue our lives with meaning. Pardon me, one way to do that is by choosing not to eat certain foods for example. I mean people think oh that's so deprived but you know there's a reason that I think all spiritual traditions uh, just about have dietary guidelines and they're they're often different from each other but whatever the intrinsic benefit of eating or not eating certain foods just the act of choosing not to eat certain foods imbues them with meaning you know or if you want to be in a monogamous relationship is that the ball and chain well it can be or is it saying, wow, you know, if I'm just choosing to be with just one person, I can only be intimate to the degree that I can open my heart and be emotionally vulnerable. But if I'm emotionally vulnerable, I can get hurt. So, but if I can have it just with one person where we have this shared understanding that we're gonna not hurt each other as, as well as we can avoid doing that and um, open our hearts, you know, which is not a binary thing, but it's, it's a you know, there are infinite levels of, of intimacy. And the more open we are, the you can only be intimate to the degree you can be vulnerable and open. And the more open and intimate we are, the more pleasurable it is, the more erotic it is, the more fun it is, you know. And so what you gain is so much more than what you give up. The same thing when you change your dying lifestyle. Um, you know, what you gain is so much more than what you give up. It's, it's particularly dramatic with people who have you know, life-threatening conditions like heart disease, as we talked about earlier, where, you know, if you can't do so many things because you have chest pain and the chest pain goes away or... If you're able to improve your cognitive function and think more clearly by changing lifestyle, or if you can avoid surgery or reduce or get off of many medications that you were told you might have to take for the rest of your life, but of course, under your doctor's supervision, for many people, those are choices worth making, not just to live longer, but to live better, and because they're so meaningful. You know, I love the um, John F. Kennedy in the 60s was talking about how we're going to go to the moon famous moonshot speech he gave, ironically, at Rice University, the same college I was at when I was uh, so suicidal a a decade later. He said, we're going to the moon not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And sometimes things that are hard are the ones that are most meaningful. Having, a you know, being a parent is really hard, but it's often the most meaningful. Swamiji used to talk about how they build temples on on high hills with lots of steps. So you have to work harder to get there because you appreciate it more uh, when you work hard for something.
1: Can you share a little bit more about what your relationship with him was like and how it influenced you?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I probably wouldn't be here if it weren't for him. So I feel like I've been on borrowed time, um, you know, for for quite some time. And that's freed me to do a lot of and take risks, professional risks. I mean, every study we've done, people thought was impossible when we first started doing it, starting with heart disease. Uh, I probably never would have had the courage to do that had I not gone through what I'd gone through under his, his guidance. Um, but I thought like, you know, well, um, when you come that close to death, it can be a very um, transformative event because it clarifies what's really important. And what is isn't. I mean, we're all going to die. The mortality rate is still, you know, 100 percent. It's one per person. But we don't think about it most of the time because it's too scary unless you have a heart attack or a life threatening illness or in my case, being suicidally depressed at the time. And then you think about it a lot. And but even then, it, the denial tends to come back as it's just too painful for most people literally contemplate that. And a lot of it has to do with how you view death. Is death the, you know, the river returning to the ocean, to the source, or is it, you know, being in a, in a black box, you know, by yourself forever, you know, the ultimate uh, I- isolating, solitary confinement, you know, that would be my definition of hell. And so for me, it enabled me to try things that I wouldn't have tried. When, you know, later as a doctor, when I began working with people who were dying, they generally on their deathbeds don't regret what they did. They generally regret what they didn't do. Because if you do something and, you, and it's a mistake, then you learn from it. And there's a lot of wisdom that comes from making mistakes and doing stupid things and learning from them. And I, I vowed once I decided not to kill myself to do as many, you know, I wanted to just fully embrace life. And I knew how to live a messy life and do a lot of stupid things, which I certainly have done more than my share. But there's a lot of wisdom that comes from doing those things. Because now I know what I don't want and what is true as well as what, what I do want and what isn't true. And so um, it's given me the courage to um, try things that I would never would have done before. Unfortunately, they've almost all of it have worked out really well. And so I developed this very personal relationship with Swami Satchidananda over the years. For decades, we talked, you know, once every week or two, uh, just on a personal level by, by phone. That was before Zoom. Uh, from wherever he was in the world, we just check in with each other. And so I had the really wonderful advantage of having such an amazing teacher that um, was so um, personal. I remember one of the first calls I had, I was telling about my girlfriend and you know how badly she was treating me. And there was a long pause, and then he'd start laughing. I'd say, Well, this isn't funny. What are you laughing about? He'd say, <laughs> keep laughing. He said, Look here, son, you know, it's not her, it's you. You know, <laughs> as long as you think it's her, you're gonna suffer, you know. And the idea again, not to blame, but to empower, you know, to realize that more often than not, it is us, if nothing else, how who we choose to be with and how we react to those those uh, those situations but probably the most powerful lesson i got from him on compassion was uh when i was a first year medical student um this was uh before i did my very first study and elizabeth kubler ross was uh uh had written a book called on death and dying talking about the five stages of death you know you know accepting we you know denial and bargaining and ultimately ending up in in acceptance and um she, uh, uh, was giving a workshop in Houston where I was in medical school. And I thought, well, let me go to this. Cause I know I'm not going to learn much about this from my medical school and I know I'm going to have to deal with this. So let me go. And I just assumed it'd be a, a four day workshop on, you know, how to deal with death and dying patients and didactic lectures and so on. And when I got there, I was surprised to find that it was really more of a primal screen <laughs> workshop. You know, her idea was that If you're working with people who are dying, it's going to bring up any kind of fears you have of dying or or suffering or any dark stuff you haven't addressed in your own life. And so um, uh, her approach was to have people go up to this, you know, mattress and this phone book with a rubber radiator hose and just kind of act out all their dark stuff in front of everyone and as a catharsis to kind of get it out of your body and out of your system. So I, by then, had already been suicidal, depressed. I was very familiar with my demons and my darkness. I felt like I don't really need to do this, but I was just finding it really just interesting watching these kind of mild mannered, you know, health professionals or ministers or priests or whatever kind of turn into Charles Manson and, you know, Helter Skelter right before me, you know, just like really just going after this stuff. You know, it was like you could just feel the, the vibration. And I watched that for the first three days and and I thought, you know, I don't really need to do this. But then on the last day, the last morning, uh, Sunday morning, my little inner voice, my inner Swami said, uh, um, you need to do this. And I said, no, I don't need to do this. He said, yeah, you do. I said, OK. So I figured I don't know these people. I'll never see them again. So I, I reminded myself that, you know, you never really know until you try. So let me try this. And if it's that's the only way I'll really know. So I went up to the mat and I started hitting and I just couldn't get into it at all. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was very intuitive, said, imagine you're hitting not just a mattress, but you're hitting somebody that you're really angry with. You know, and I said, I'm not angry with anyone. A little halo over my head. And she said, no, I think you must have some anger there. So I, I kind of systematically went through all of the people that i had been angry with, you know, over my lifetime, you know, and one by one, they would kind of be shocked that I was hitting them with this rubber hose and, you know, fight back. And then, you know, I'd overpower them in my fantasy and then move on to the next person. And after about twenty minutes of this, I was literally dripping with sweat. I had blisters on my hands. I said, and I felt like, if anything, that I just intensified the anger. That I had it didn't free me from it. If, if anything, it just fed it in many ways. And um, but I thought, well, that's interesting to know. So now I know that you know that's not the way you deal with anger is by energizing it. It's, it's it must be a different way. So I told Elizabeth, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm done. She said, well, you're not done. You've left somebody out. And she, again, was very intuitive. I said, well, who could I possibly have left out? i gone through all these people. And then she said, well, think about it. I thought, oh, Swami Satchananda, you know, my teacher. And a few months before, I went to a lecture of his in Chicago where he talked about the man who found God through pure hatred of God, which we don't really have anything in Western tradition like that. But the point was is that the purity of the emotion is really what will help you um, grow and um, even negative. So I thought, okay, well, let's find out. So I imagined him standing before me and it was like one of these realer than real experiences where it really felt like he was standing before me like this hologram. And I started to hit him across the legs with his rubber hose and I thought, well, okay, if you're gonna do it, do 100% is what he was saying. So, um, and then um, unlike everybody else, he would be shocked and fight back. He just kind of stood there with his arms outstretched and let me hit him which at the time just made me more angry. So then I, I know this sounds horrible, but I, I just have to kind of share what really happened. So I looked up with the intention of saying, okay, well, now I just have to hit him across the face with his rubber hose. And I can see that there were these tears coming down his face. And they weren't tears like I was physically hurting them, hurting him. It was more, I can only describe it as, as pure compassion. And I could hear him say, without a hint of being uh, patronizing, uh, you poor ignorant boy, you just don't know any better. And at that moment, I just melted because uh, even just telling you the story now is kind of, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting emotional because in that moment I thought, wow, here I am showing the darkest part of myself and getting only light in return, love and compassion in return. And then if somebody else could have that kind of love and compassion for me in my darkness, maybe I could have that kind of compassion for my darkness and shine a light. And when you shine a light in the darkness, the darkness goes away. And then if I could have that compassion for my own darkness, then maybe I could have that love and compassion for other people's darkness, and then we're all free. And so then I realized that's how we transcend that anger and hatred is not through energizing it, but by having compassion for it. You know, Nelson Mandela, um, I have this wonderful book on my shelf that he gave me, The Long Walk to Freedom, um, talked about how after being in prison for 16 years and he was finally released and he did this famous Long Walk to Freedom, he was asked, uh, do you hate your jailers? And he said, well, they took away the best years of my life. I can see my kids grow up and my family and all that. But if I hate them, then I'm still in prison in my heart. And this is what I, I think the most important message that I learned from Swami Satchidananda is how to use the experience of suffering as a doorway for really transforming our lives, to quiet down our mind and body, to rediscover inner sources of peace and joy and well-being and love and to love ourselves and to love others. As the most powerful force. Um, you know, as a doctor, when someone's diagnosed with heart disease or any of these conditions, I'm trained to kill the pain or to bypass the pain, you know, as quickly as possible, as opposed to saying, why is the pain there? And Swamiji always should say, pain is not your enemy, pain is your guru, pain is your messenger. It's saying, hey, listen up, pay attention. You're doing something that's not in your best interest. And and you know, change is hard, but if you're hurting enough, then the idea of pain becomes uh the the idea of change becomes more appealing because it's like well it may be kind of weird but the science is there so it shows it works and boy i'm hurting so bad let me try this weird stuff and again because these underlying biological mechanisms are so dynamic when you make really big changes all at once in a number of different things which is also what i learned from him the pain tends to go away you know your chest pain or angina goes away your aches and pains and your joints tend to go away um you know the uh, cognitive function often improves in patients and so again what you gain is so much more than what you give up it reframes the reason for making these changes from fear of dying to joy of living and that's ultimately what, what makes them so sustainable and he would say you know that again our nature is to be happy and healthy uh for the most part and peaceful and so it changes the a question from how can i get what i think i need to be healthy and happy to what am I doing to disturb my own innate sense of health and well-being? Again, not to blame myself, but to empower myself because if it's out there, then everyone who has something I think I need has power over me and control over me. But if it's me, I can do something about that. And so that's ultimately what um, the, I mean, all of my studies in many ways are what I call a conspiracy of love. In other words, it's a way for to teach people at a time when they're the most hurting and the most vulnerable, how they can use that experience, just as I did with my being suicidally depressed. Someone else might be have a heart attack or a stroke or prostate cancer or diabetes or whatever that becomes, that gets their attention and there's an openness to change there, which if we can reach them at that time, I, I can't tell you how many people have said things to me like, you know, having a heart attack was the best thing that ever happened to me or being diagnosed with prostate cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me. The first time I heard that, I said, like, what are you, nuts? And they would say, no, that's what it took to get my attention to begin making these changes that have transformed my life to such a degree that I probably never would have done otherwise. And again, what I've done is to take what I've learned from Swami Satchitananda, put it into a scientific context. And ironically, we're using this very high tech expensive state of the art scientific measures to prove how powerful these very simple and low tech and low cost interventions can be so that's what i that's what brings meaning into my life is to be able to feeling like i'm on borrowed time to be able to make a difference in the lives of really ultimately millions of people at this point and especially now that medicare is covering it when you change reimbursement you change medical practice and even medical education so it's a it's an opportunity to really uh make a difference in the lives of many many people that i'll never meet but hopefully will Benefit from
1: what from what I learned from him. This this idea of borrowed time, uh, I feel, is very very powerful. To view life in this way, it's like I'm not owed anything. Each day that I get is 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 an, is another gift. Yeah, it seems kind of obvious to me. Is like that nature is set up this way, right? Like we see examples all the time of okay, life can just come in and end. So reframing this, right, from like, oh, when I'm this age, I, I I notice a lot that human beings use this language of like, assuming that we're owed, uh, we're entitled to certain things from life, number of years, uh, a marriage, children, but nature doesn't work that way. And, and right, not being in alignment with nature, not um, connecting with the truth.
0: I mean, you're right. I mean, like again when you're diagnosed with a life-threatening illness most people really come face to the face with their own mortality in a way that we don't think about most of the time because it's too scary to think about so we don't but having gone through what i went through when i came about as close to committing suicide as you can without actually doing it death is very familiar to me and i think about it all the time and every morning when i wake up i tell my wife and my family how wonderful that we have another day together how what a what a, a, a gift that is you know and if you really knew like you let's say you knew you were going to die in seven days you know hopefully that'll never happen but let's just say you knew Uh, and you thought okay well i could really stay stuck in my righteous anger because you know my wife didn't do something that i wanted to do or did something i didn't want her to do just as an example um or i'd say well if i only had seven days left do i really want to be righteously stuck in my anger or do i want to say wait a minute um, why don't we find a way to get out of this, you know, cause if you're totally committed to someone, you know, sooner or later, you're going to get to a good place. So why not just skip all the stuff in the middle and just go right to that place? You know, so we've come up with the, we, we, so let's come up with a code word. If one of us can remember that, you know, you know, in the heat of an argument, if at least one of us can remember that, then we can kind of go, you know, get to a good place so much faster. And we couldn't remember the code word. So we just decided code word would be our, our code word. You know? <laughs> code word. So if one of us can evoke the code, we go, oh, you're right. Of course, you know, and, and it, it's amazing, you know, how quickly we can get back to a good place as opposed to just kind of both of us kind of being self-righteously like I'm right and you're wrong. No, I'm right and you're wrong. But if I'm right, I don't want her to be wrong. She's going to be unhappy and I'm going to be unhappy. Like we have two unhappy people who are so self-righteously stuck in that awful place and one of the gifts of, of the fact that we are going to die someday is to say, wait a minute, are we really spending our time in the way that we most want to? Would I rather be, you know, making love or, you know, singing music or watching a wonderful movie or watching, you know, playing with our kids or stuck in my self-righteous anger? You know, it's it's so seductive and so easy to get stuck in those places. And that's one of the things that I also learned from, from Swami Satchitananda, how When you really can come to grips with how finite uh, our lives are, it enables us to make different choices. And at the same time, when we also realize that, you know, in one level, you know, our body dies, but who we are lives on, that, you know, we are, on one level, we're separate, you know, you're you and I and me, and on another level, a part of something larger that connects us. Um, In the Undo It book, I cite so many studies that show that people who are Lonely and isolated and depressed are three to ten times more likely to get sick and die prematurely from pretty much all causes when compared to those who have a sense of love and connection and community. I don't know anything in medicine that has that big an impact. But it can be intimacy in terms of with other people, but it also can be intimacy in the sense of that on one level, you know, we're separate, you know, you're you and I mean we can enjoy having this, this conversation. But on another level, we're part of, you know, we're it's the same non-dual experience, you know you know, in different forms. You know, Swamiji one you used to give the example of, it's like going into an old style movie theater with a light going through the projector and then it gets projected in all these different names and forms and dramas, but behind that is still the light. And if you can have what he called that double vision that on one level we're separate, but on another level we're not, then you can really enjoy the drama without getting caught in it. And then you can perform so much better and do things and be more creative and have so many more uh, degrees of freedom by, by having that non-dual experience. But ultimately if intimacy is healing, the ultimate intimacy, if you will, is to realize that we're already interconnected. We're already the same manifesting in different names and forms and, and uh, lives and bodies and so on. And so at the same time, the death can be so clarifying. It helps to remove the fear of death if you realize that it's just, you know, changing form from one to another.
1: Hmm. I want to ask you about meditation, because when, when I meditate, I, I experience this oneness, this, this connection to something larger than myself. Um, and, and I also had a lot of depression for, for a long time before I really had a meditation practice. And, and much of that was from, uh, feeling alone, the sense of loneliness. And when I stop and I get quiet and I become still, I sense the truth that, that I'm a part of something else. And I think that really helps a lot uh, to feel that that's true. So I'm curious for someone who doesn't have a meditation practice, have you, um, seen any, any successful, uh, strategies for someone to kind of first dip their toe in that water of meditation to get started with a practice?
0: Well, most of the patients I work with have not meditated. And so this is their first experience in that. So I have lots and lots of experience working with people and, and teaching them either directly or through the people that I work with, how to meditate. It's, it can be life transforming. So I explained to them that meditation, as I learned from Swami Satyananda, is just the process of bringing your mind to one thing. It can be anything. Uh, but traditionally, certain sounds have been found to be soothing. You know, Om is the uh, archetypal one, but it can be al- om, or shalom, or salam, or amin, or amen, or even the word one in a more secular way. They tend to be words that start with an o or an A, they end with an m or an n, humming to a baby, you know, parents just intuitively know that that's a soothing sound. And so I say, start with a sound, <clears throat> just repeat it om, or one, if you want to do something secular until you're focused on the humming sound, because it tends to really be soothing, And then when you're out of here, do it again, over and over again. And say, look, that's meditation. That's so easy. Like, or why would I want to do that? I've got a thousand things on my to-do list. Why would I want to sit there and go one or own? And you say, well, first of all, uh, Einstein showed that matter and energy are interconvertible. When you focus your mind, it has an effect on your body for better and for worse. If you're angry, your mind gets very focused, but in a negative way. So lots of bad things happen. But if you focus your mind in a more intentional way, it's kind of like, anytime you focus energy you gain power uh focusing the sun's rays with a magnifying glass you can burn through a you know a piece of paper or a laser is just focused or a coherent light all the waves are in, in step so you can burn through steel and so your mind is a form of energy and when you can focus it then you gain more power so whatever you're doing you know in athletics or um you know in business or in school or whatever any you know when you can focus better you can concentrate better you can perform better That's the first thing. The second thing is that when you meditate, your mind begins to quiet down. And when you quiet down, you begin to experience what we talked about earlier, that inner sense of peace and joy and well-being. And to realize that the meditation didn't bring me that sense of peace and well-being, which is so often what people think, that the meditation brings it to you. But rather, it was there already. It just helps you to stop disturbing, at least temporarily, what was already there. And again... That may sound like parsing words and semantics, but the implications were profound because if it was already there, then I just the question shifts from how can I get what I think I need to how can I stop disturbing what's already there? And it's very empowering because I don't have to worry about getting something that from someone else. I just have to stop doing what what I may be doing that's disturbing them. The third thing that happens if you go even deeper is that it gives you that non-dual experience, that sense that on one level we're separate and another level we're all interconnected in a very direct and, and powerful way that that is truly transformative. And the other, finally, the other thing that happens um, is that we can we all have an inner Swami, an inner Guru, if you will, an inner teacher, whatever name you want to give to that. It speaks very clearly but very quietly. Sometimes it's called the still small voice within. In many traditions, um, the God within, the Guru within. It can be secular, it can be religious, but it's that part of ourselves that speaks very clearly but very quietly, and often gets drowned out by the chatter of everyday life. And I've learned that I can listen to that voice. In fact, all of the studies that I've done have come from listening to that voice and then saying, hey, this is gonna work. And then kind of reverse engineering to see how could I, is there science to prove that or to, to, to support that? Uh, how can I design a randomized trial to test that and so on? But the ideas themselves have come from that. So at the end of a meditation, when my mind is more quiet usually, and I can access that voice more easily and hear it, I'll say hello and it'll say hello back so I can just, you know, hear it. And then I always ask the same question. What am I not paying attention to that I need to pay attention to? And just listen, and it will tell me. It doesn't tell me all at once. It'll say, well, you need to do this. And then I'll let them engage in a dialogue. And we all have that. And I think that's one of the most, and I've learned because I do that almost every day, that even in the midst of a, uh, you know, a uh, intense debate, you know, with another scientist or a discussion or something that's, you know, really all encompassing, I can just listen to that voice and say, what am I missing here? What am I not getting? What do I need to know in order to get to a better place and to and to um, to be more of a healer than than uh, than I am being at the, at the current time? And and more often than not, I can listen for that. So to me, one of the most powerful aspects of meditation is to be able to quiet down our minds enough to be able to actually hear that voice. And we all have one.
1: Hmm. This idea that you've brought up a few times now about, you know, our true nature is happiness, right? And so it's, it's undoing the stuff to get back to it. And so I wonder like, how did that stuff all get there to begin with? Right. Because you know, what you say, uh, eat well, uh, move more uh stress less and love more right like those are so obvious right so the question to me is is how can a human being not be doing those things that are so obvious and (laughs) what comes to mind for me there is that it's the pressure to fit in is a really strong pressure in life and so to eat differently than all the people around me in my community and my family and to exercise when no one else is exercising, going for a walk, whatever it is, and, and not getting agitated. Like that makes me different. And I don't want to be different. I want to, I want to fit in. So have you noticed that that is an obstacle often for people and, and what might be a remedy for that?
0: Yeah. When you're talking about get back, I've just been watching that uh, that nine hour documentary on the Beatles called get back. Um, (laughs) Me too. (laughs) along you know i like that um i keep singing that song in my mind <clears throat> um well you know these things may seem obvious but they're really radical at least in the medical profession you know the idea that you know eat well move more stress less love more could, could reverse a chronic disease people think it has to be a new drug a new laser something really high-tech and expensive to be powerful and i think our unique contribution has been to use these very high-tech expensive state-of-the-art scientific measures like cardiac, you know, positron emission tomography and radionuclide ventriculography and speckballium and quantitative arteriography, et cetera, to prove the power of these very simple and low tech and low cost and really ancient ideas. You know, I didn't invent this idea. I learned most of it from from Swami Satchitananda. i just put it into a a modern context. And, um, you know, it's radical in the sense that the word radical, uh, you know, like a square root sign used to be called a radical radical really means to get to the root of something. And that was Swamiji's entire philosophy. You know, was, there's a causal chain of events that leads to, say, a heart attack. And if you just literally, figuratively bypass it, then problem's going to come back again. It's like mopping up a floor around a sink of, that's overflowing without turning off the faucet. You know, it's why when you get put on medications to lower your cholesterol or blood pressure or blood sugar, and you say, Doctor, how long do I have to take these? What does the doctor usually say? Forever. It's like how long do I have to mop up these the floor around the sink forever? Why don't we just turn off the faucet, treat the cause? And so when you say, you know, how does it that, you know, where do these things begin? I think we there's a lot of ignorance that comes from, you know, so much of our culture teaches us that I mean, the whole advertising industry is based on the idea that you need to get something to be happy, you know. It's Miller time, you know, it's when you see a beer ad or you see um again, not that there's anything wrong with these things, but they always have people they're, they're not sitting in a corner drinking a beer by themselves, you know, they're with a party of you know, people having fun and yucking it up and having a good time. So, oh I, that's what I want, you know. And we associate the behavior with the feeling when the feeling is really uh not not connected with that. So the whole advertising industry is billions and billions of dollars were spent to try to convince us that we need to get something outside of ourselves in order to be happy and healthy. That's all pharmaceutical industry. Ask your doctor about this new drug. You know, this is not uh, a coincidence. And so, and, and also, as you say, we all want to fit in, you know, the real epidemic isn't just heart disease and diabetes. It's loneliness and depression and isolation. You know, 50 years ago, people had more often than not an extended family. They saw regularly. They had a, a neighborhood with three or three generations of people who grew up together. You know, they had a a church or a synagogue or a mosque or a club they went to regularly. They had a job that they'd been at for, you know, 10 years or more, and they felt safe and secure. in. And many people today don't have any of those things. And part of what we give up from that is that when you grow up in a family, an extended family or a neighborhood with three or three generations of, of people in there, they really know you. They don't just know your Facebook profile or your bio sketch, you know, they know where I when you when you were suicide depressed in my case, or they know when you got busted, or they know when you, you know, had your drug OD or whatever dark things you were doing, and, and you know that they know, and they know that you know that they know, and they're still there for you. There's just something really primal about being seen fully, not just in your, you know, your bio sketch, you know, your Facebook profile. One of the studies that I my wife and I cite in our in our book Undo It, the new book that comes out in paperback, uh, is that um, the more time you spend on Facebook, the more depressed you are, because it's it's not a real intimacy. It's it's a false intimacy because it's people don't talk about their dark stuff for the most part on Facebook. It's like here I am in front of the Eiffel Tower and here I am with my my kids, you know, graduating from college and whatever it is, it looks like everybody has this perfect life, but you and it makes you just feel more isolated and more depressed. And so when our support groups, what we do, which is a part of our, our intervention, you know, it's a part of the love war part of the intervention is we create a place that feels safe enough for people to uh, let down their emotional defenses and to talk about their feelings in an authentic and an open way without fear that someone's going to judge them or criticize them or abandon them or uh, give them glib advice on how to make it better, but just to really be there and fully present for them. It's what, you know, an avatar, that wonderful film from James Cameron, you know, I see you, you know, which is really from an African proverb, I see all of you. And it's incredibly um, because most people don't have that in their lives these days, um, it's incredibly meaningful. It's a part of our intervention that people generally have the most confusion or apprehension about, and yet it's invariably the part that's the most meaningful because then you've created a different context of what is, quote, normal behavior, where everyone fits in. You know, where they're all eating the same kind of food, they're all meditating together, you know, this is why people live in spiritual communities so they can have that sense of thing. And then they can go out in the world and not, and, and you don't have to like draw attention to yourself. It doesn't have to be like that, Seen from uh, when Harry met Sally, you know, when Meg Ryan's ordering her, uh, her yeah. you know, in a restaurant, it can just be, you know, uh, you're going out with a group of people, um, you know, ask the chef, can they just make me a vegetable plate? Just ask them to put the uh, freshest vegetables, try to use as little oil and butter and salt as possible. Boom, that's it. You know, you don't have to draw attention to yourself and you're not feeling like you're different. And then. Um, people you know, like, hey, what are you eating? I didn't see that on the menu. That looks great. Can I have that too? I'll have what he's having, you know? Uh, so there are ways that we can make these changes without drawing attention to ourselves. But also I think that being in a, a context of people are also doing it makes it that much easier. Hmm. Hmm. And also to, to realize that the time that we spend with our friends and family and loved ones are not the luxuries of life that you do after you've done the fun stuff, that this is the important stuff, you know, that... Uh, we're not really uh, as mindful of that as, as, as we could be. And I think, if anything, COVID has really taught people that, I mean, I used to travel, you know, 100 to 200,000 miles a year. I've gone almost nowhere in the last almost two years. And it's been incredible because now I get to spend more time, actually practice what I preach so much better uh, by being with my family and friends and loved ones in ways that um, I didn't really have as much time for before.
1: Hmm. This uh, common psychological approach, I think, to you know, want to get to a peak, like that happy place, when I attain this thing, uh, this status or this material, this person, whatever it is, then you know, life is going to be amazing. I'm going to be happy, you know. And I've heard you um, explain, you know, that that's not going to do it, right? And Swami Sachidan talks about that a lot too. So. And, and, and my sense is, too, that that is what maybe led to your spiral of depression, like realizing that none of those things, anything that you aim for is not going to bring you the happy, happiness that maybe you're, you're looking for.
0: It well, um, was yeah. not feeling like I was ever going to accomplish those things. And even if I did, it wouldn't matter. So that was kind of the right. one 2 uh, punch. But yeah, right. that, and realizing that. Um, no, don't get me wrong. And in Swamiji would say the same thing. It's nice when nice things come. Just don't get so attached to them. You know, if they come, they may go, you know, and uh, I don't define, he said, you know, we're born, he'll have to make puns, you know, uh, not just like I was, what are you, a Hindu? Uh, no, I'm an undo. you know, where he'd say you were born, fine. And then we define ourselves and we get stuck in all these definitions of who we think we are, I'm this, I'm that, you know, as a way of separating ourselves from others, other as opposed to finding what really connects us.
1: Right, right. And that that's what I was going to ask about you know, like we have to do something with our time (laughs) if we're going to be alive. Um, So can we just be okay with like constant never ending progression? I'm never going to reach that, that peak, but I'm going to do certain things. And, you know, if I take care of myself and, and have good relationships and all of that, like my life can, can improve, but it's not an end game. It's just a a constant progression. Is that a, a healthier attitude?
0: Yeah, in a way. I mean, we define ourselves and then we refine ourselves, you know. I mean, it's really the the great drama. You know, again, it's the double vision of uh, the light going through the projector uh, with all these names and forms and dramas on the screen. But you also can really only enjoy the drama without getting lost in it if you can see the light behind it as well. This is just the dance of life, the Lila, the the divine uh, play, if you will. Uh, You can just sit back and enjoy it. And there are incredible peak experiences when you can live that way. I mean, Swamiji was one of the, you know, I had, I mean, I got to spend so much time with him and, uh, you know, both in person and, and on the phone and he loved life. You know, he was always just enjoying the drama as it unfolded. Um, you know, it's not, it's anything but boring when you realize that, um, there's, there are all degrees of freedom when you can relate to the world in that way. All possibilities are open to you because you're not limiting yourself
1: it's probably the most important thing that, uh, for me that I ever heard him say is, you know, what is the point of life? And the answer to have fun, I was like, wow, you know, that, that, that feels right. Like, that's what I want to do. I want to have fun. I want to, I want to play. I want to see it like that.
0: Exactly. And the whole language of behavioral change has this kind of, Nurse ratchet, you know, figure wagging, you know, fascist quality, like, you know, once you call foods good or bad, it's a very small step to saying I'm a bad person because I eat bad food and just gives another excuse for you to not have fun and, and beat yourself up as opposed to saying to be compassionate for yourself, you know. If you indulge yourself one day, it doesn't mean you failed or you cheated or you're bad. Just eat healthier the next. You don't have time to meditate for an hour. Do it for a minute. You know, you don't have time to exercise for an hour. Do it for five. Whatever you do, there's a corresponding benefit. And then it takes it out of the realm of good, bad, right, wrong. And just it's more you can be much more compassionate with yourself when we can relate to each other that way. And then we can be more compassionate with others as well, without the judgment, without the anger, without the you know, the shaming and the, and the scolding and all of the things that are so often associated with that. And again, if what you gain is more than what you give up, which it is, these biological mechanisms are so dynamic in both directions. You can get better quickly. You can get worse quickly. You can feel better. You can feel worse. Then you start to connect the dots between what you do and how you feel. Uh, There's a wonderful movie called the game changers that came out uh, a couple of years ago that James Cameron did again, the legendary director. And, um, it was about how elite athletes raised their game and became Olympic uh, medalists at the age of 40, or the Tennessee Titans won their first NFL championship, uh, or the mixed martial artist uh, guy won the national championship, you know, really kind of really powerful things by just changing what you mean. And there's this, <laughs> there's this wonderful scene in there where they have these three guys who are elite athletes in their mid-20s, and they feed them a, a single meal, a single meat-based meal. And then they measure the frequency and hardness of erections they have at night when they sleep, which is a normal guy function. And then they do the same thing the day later and they give them a single plant-based meal and they measure it again. And all three guys had like three to five hundred percent more frequent erections and 10 to 15 percent harder erections after the plant-based meal than the meat-based meal. Because your sexual organs get more blood, your brain gets more blood, your heart gets more blood, etc. I mean, the film crew actually went on a plant-based diet after they shot that scene, you know, because it shows so clearly... Now, it's not about living to be 86 instead of 85. It's not about, you know, that doesn't motivate most people, you know, even when they're 85. You know, it's about, oh, what I gain is so much more than what I give up. My chest pain goes away. if I've got heart disease. My sexual function improves. My, I can think more clearly. I have more energy. I need less sleep. I look younger. I mean, I'm 96. I look pretty good, don't you think? Um, <laughs> I'm 60, uh, Whatever. I'm 68. Um, and again, I've, I have more energy than, than I had when I was 40. And so when people realize that what you gain is so much more than what you give up, that you can have more fun by making these changes, then it completely reframes it from, oh, you know, austerity and deprivation, which is so often the first thing that people think about, to, oh, I'm doing this because what I gain is so much more than what I give up. You know, people say things like, I like eating junk food, but not that much. I like being able to do all these things, you know, a lot more. And so it's worth it to me.
1: I, I love the way that you framed it what I gain is so much more than, than what I give up. And I, and I wonder, you know, well, how can I realize that, you know, how can I, can I, can I look at it and see what am I going to gain if I do this? Uh, if I give up these things and, um, I sense that it's a matter of speed more than anything. That's really an obstacle towards realizing that
0: because well, it's an empirical process you you can find from your own experience. Um, And the paradox is that if you make big changes all at once in a number of different things, not just diet, but, you know, all these other things we're talking about, you will feel better whether you have heart disease or not. If you have heart disease, it'll become even more dramatic because your chest pain is likely to get better. But otherwise, you're, you know, you'll just feel better. You'll know. And again, because these biological mechanisms are so dynamic, you do it for a few days. You know, that's the whole premise of going to a yoga retreat. At the end of a yoga retreat, you feel so much better. You go, oh, I get it now. And it takes it out of the realm of, well, maybe it's true. Maybe it's not true. I've been in so many diet debates and diet wars. I stopped doing them. But you just know from your own experience that it's true. And then then you know that, okay, I feel so much better. That's worth it to me than what I'm not doing. And then again, it doesn't mean you're never going to do those things, but I'll do less of that and more of this. And then you start to connect the dots to what you do and how you feel. When I do this, I feel good. When I do this, I don't feel so good. Let me do more of this and less of that because it comes out of your own experience. And then that's really the best
1: teaching. Right, right. I guess what I'm saying is like, you know, I can be moving so fast in my life from distraction, to distraction. 20 years could go by before I've stopped to even, you know, question, you know, what is this doing for me?
0: It's true. Well, I so appreciate the chance to be here with you today. And, you know, one of the things that Swamiji always used to say is that awareness is the first step in healing. And I so appreciate the chance to share this uh, information and teachings that I learned from him, as well as what I've learned on my own with the people who are watching this. And I hope at least and to some degree, it's been helpful and raised awareness of what a powerful difference these changes can be. You know, that's the biggest obstacle I find. oh well, dying life, so that's kind of boring or that's obvious, you know, why would I want to, you know, what's new here? You know, and I think that when people realize how powerful these changes can be and how quickly they can occur and then they start to do them and then they can experience them themselves, uh, it can truly be transformative.
1: Yeah, to fall in love with the growth with the progression, with the changes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's really an honor for me. I have to say, you know, it's a little bit nervous today because, you know, I I grew up hearing your name and and seeing your books around my house and, and things. So um, I really appreciate your time and, and what you're doing Um, specifically about your new book, uh, undo it. uh, Is there anything else that you would like to, to share about that? Um, Really? Maybe what an experience someone might have reading it um, aside from what you've shared today?
0: Well, um, it's, it just came out. It comes in paperback on January the 4th. Um, it uh, is kind of the distillation of everything that I've learned that we've been talking about today. And I tried to make it as simple as possible without making it simplistic. So it's uh, it has all the science there for those who want to dig down into it. But we just, and my wife and I did this as uh, she wrote half the book. I wrote half the book. Um, and uh, the feedback that we've gotten on it has been really helpful. It presents this unifying theory so that people can understand the context of why these things work as well as they do. But we want it to be fun and simple. And uh, I'm hoping that other people have that experience when they read it as well. Hmm.
1: Wonderful. And your website is really incredible. I I had the chance to to really peruse it a a, a bit. It's so user friendly. Um, Yeah, well done with that. She she designed the whole thing. She's brilliant and she designed
0: our whole learning management system as well. And she has a way of making everything beautiful. So it's uh, it's such a blessing being being with her.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Arnish. Really appreciate your time.
0: Me too. Thanks so much. Take care, Alvin.